Hey everyone, welcome to my show, my so-called fabulous. I'm Tiffany and I am here today with a fabulous man that I have actually wanted to him to come in here since we started, but I didn't know how to ask him. And then we had the C word, the COVID word. So Benny and I just reconnected and uh, everyone welcome to the show, Benny Vaughn. Thank you, Tiffany. I am thrilled to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And let me explain. You know what? There there are so many letters behind your name and you have so many accolades and we're going to hit on all of these. But let me explain something. He is an athletic therapist, sports medicine professional. But let me say this, five Olympic Games. All right. Atlanta. Hey, I was there. I was not <laughs> participating. I think I was serving coffee or something. Athens, Beijing, London, and recently Tokyo. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. Uh, five Olympic Games for any sports medicine professional is extraordinary. Actually, one is. And I have been uh, fortunate to have had the opportunity to support USA athletes at five Olympic games, five Olympic games. Okay. Is it because you, we're going to, we're going to tell the whole Benny Vaughn story here and in, in momentarily, but let me ask you those Olympic games, is it track and field or other sports? So I have done uh, both. I have been uh, with the USA track and field team, which is the largest athlete delegation within our U.S. Olympic delegation. So we have more athletes in track and field. Second comes USA Swimming and then everyone else. So we just have more athletes because we have more events in track and field and in swimming. So we typically have the largest number. Also, track and field takes place in the crown jewel of their summer Olympics, the Olympic stadium, Mm -hmm. which typically is where the Olympic flame is located during that duration. So track and field gets a, a lot of attention, but I've also worked with the USOPC, uh, which is the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee sports medicine division at our high performance center. That's what I recently did at the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games is I worked at the High Performance Center. So at the High Performance Center, any USA athlete can come there for care, but it's also a training facility. What we typically do when the country that will host the next Olympic Games has been announced Within six months, the USOPC, we send a search team that will go to that country and identify an existing sports complex, which we will then lease for uh, one to two months and convert it into a U.S. Olympic training center that we call the High Performance Center. Many times we... Uh, go in and we build uh, a track. We may build a natatorium for USA Swimming. We may build basketball courts. And then at the conclusion, we gift all of that to whoever it is hosting. So many times we will find uh, an existing 
university campus that's out for the summer. And we'll go in and do that. For example, in Beijing, uh, we went in and uh, put in uh, two tracks, an auditorium, basketball training facility, and then we just gifted that wow. to uh, Beijing University uh, at the end. But that's our high-performance training center, and we have our own security. Uh, we have our own uh, chefs. We have our own everything. We have a weight room. We have everything. 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 So, so that's where I was uh, in Tokyo. And uh, so I worked at the High Performance Center. So in Tokyo 2020, things look, looked a little different from the previous four, right? You were explaining a little bit that because we had our precious COVID and that was 2020. So how did it look over there? What was what was the atmosphere? What, what was going on? It, yeah. So w- one thing you, your listeners need to be reminded of is Tokyo 2020 was actually held in 2021. It got delayed a year because of COVID. The procedures that were put in place by the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo Organizing Committee was extraordinary. No other Olympic host has ever, ever had to do what the Tokyo Committee was challenged with. Uh, Everyone uh, was tested daily. We were tested daily. Every single person in the Olympic Village was tested daily. We had to uh, be tested daily. And uh, on top of that, when we arrived at uh, Tokyo Airport and I flew into uh, Tokyo Narita, uh, you're tested once you're deplane, you're taken straight to testing. And you have to give a uh, saliva sample. You're tested there. And then when you get to uh, the village, you get tested again. Wow. So, you know, if you caught it between the airport and the village, you're out of luck. (laughs) Out of luck. And the athletes, I mean, some tested positive. And you, Benny, I I, I see Benny. um, He takes care of me. Thank goodness. um, He in, In the past few years. But some of the athletes were exposed and they had to go home, right? That's correct. And that's the most unfortunate part of COVID in athletics is that if you produced a positive test, then your opportunity that you've prepared years for is Mm. no longer. Mm -mm. And there was no wiggle room. There was no margin there. Uh, It was you know, test. Now they would do a second test to confirm, uh, to be sure it wasn't a false positive, but there were athletes whose Olympic dreams ended Mm-mm. with a positive COVID test. Oh, the impact this has made on so many lives, but people that have, and athletes that have trained so long and, you know, um, mental and your career. I mean, I know you're working with the body and the mechanics, but the mental that you work with these athletes that from what you've told me, they are about to go out on the court or they're about to go out on the field or they're about to go in the ring or whatever the case on the pool. You were one of the last people to actually have contact with these athletes. So you're not only just body, you're mental, right? Helping these athletes. That's correct. The, the event of athletics, 
the these athletes are demonstrating extraordinary abilities of the human body. And that human body is being driven by their mindset. So the mindset that an athlete at that level is required to have requires uh, support and amplification from the support staff, coaches, athletic trainers, massage therapists, equipment personnel. Everyone must contribute to that athlete's performance. And for me, I am often the last contact they have before that moment begins for them, uh, myself and their coach. And so the words that I use, the statements that I make, and the thoughts that I have creates an energetic mindset that supports that athlete's performance and supports that athlete's mindset before they enter the stadium or walk out onto the pool deck. You know, I don't know if I've ever told you, but you are probably one of the most wise men that I've ever known in my life. I mean, I'm with you often and I've I listen to stories and I'm just so amazed and I cannot even imagine the number of athletes that you have changed. I mean, even clients like myself just change and it's all in a mindset too. You know, I you said something, actually, uh, you were a speaker at University of Florida, your alma mater, and you said, if there is a problem, there is a solution. And I believe that, you know, and I'm sure that you give that message to all of your clients, right? I, I do. And when you look at the energy of the universe, that that is a universal law. If a problem exists, so does a solution. Because one cannot exist without the other. You know, to have yin, you must have yang. To have up, you must have down. To have left, you must have right. To have black, you must have white. So it, it is the balance of universal, infinite intelligence. So if a problem exists, so does a solution. So in my uh, therapy practice, that's been the model that I have always operated from for 46 years. So I'll be 71 this year. I've been doing this a long time. I've seen a lot. I've heard a lot. I've done a lot. And when a person comes to me for care, I tell them that I can help you. And I don't have to know how I'm going to help them. I just have to know and believe that I will help them. And then how I help them will be revealed once the process begins. And that's both from uh, a body therapy standpoint. And it's also just from transformational coaching standpoint, mm -hmm. because I incorporate both in the work that I do with people. Right, right. Absolutely. So let's back up. Let's back up 
70 years here. And um, you were born in Georgia in the deep south, Columbus, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, that- that's correct. I was actually born in uh, America's Georgia uh, at the Colored Women's Hospital. Colored Women's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually uh, went to America's 25 years ago with my brother uh, because we wanted to find this place to see you know, just what it looked like to see where I was birthed. And uh, it had been turned into a, a community recreational center, the building. And uh, I actually uh, tried to find the uh, physician who delivered me. I, I was just curious to see. Right. But uh, I discovered that he had passed away. He passed away. So you born there in the Deep South, your dad in the Army, a cook. Because you're a good cook, too. You had a good teacher. I I, I am a good cook. (laughs) You're a great teacher. So growing up in the South, and I want to go when you were in Germany, but part of your accolades here is you you were bused to high school in the 60s when the Civil Rights Law was passed and signed by LBJ. So tell us about the experience, because you were an athlete going to an all-black school, and then you were bused to uh, uh, you were to a white school, right? That's right. So uh, I was at Marshall Junior High School, which is uh, in Columbus, Georgia, right across from Tom's Peanut Factory. And on the days that they were roasting peanuts there, that was a pretty good day to be at uh, Marshall <laughs> Junior High. Right. Uh, and so I was in the eighth grade there. And then when it came time for me to go to the ninth grade, uh, I was told that I would be bused to the all-white high school and did not want to go. I, I protested with my mother that I wanted to go to the all-black high school and why do I have to do this? And I remember my mother explaining, well, you know, it's like the law, you know, this is kind of what has to happen. Uh, curiously enough, no white students were being bused to the black high schools. Right. Uh, but uh, so... It, it turned out to be, you know, a very fortunate uh, situation for me because that's where I met uh, my great coach and mentor, Sam T. Roberts, who uh, took me under his wing on to the track team. So I was the first black kid on the all-white track team. And as a ninth grader, uh, he saw something in me where this is how the day went. So I went out for the track team. I played freshman football that year and I was the only black kid on the football team too. Cause you know, the ninth grade team. And so I went out for track to stay in shape for football. And so after a couple of weeks of training, coach Robert says, okay, boys, we're going to have a time trial today and you're going to run these events so that I can determine who will be on the team and what event you'll run. And he says to me, he says, Vaughn, you're going to run the 880. I had no idea what the 880 was. <laughs> he said that that's two laps. So you're going to run two laps. And this is a cinder track. I have on a pair of $2 tennis shoes from the discount, uh, department store because that's all we could afford and 
he says, so you'll run these two laps and then I'll decide who's on the team and all this and that. And I remember watching all the white boys, they were putting on these fancy Adidas spikes and man, I'm like looking like, man, what are those? Those are like really cool. And uh, I'm thinking, man, we, we can't afford that. Mm -hmm. So these tennis shoes slide on cinders. You don't really get any grip. So I go out, I run the two laps and I run a two twenty three eight eighty, which is now the 800, two laps. Uh, and there's a reason I'm telling you what I ran two twenty three. And at the end of it, I'm on the infield on my hands and knees, barely able to breathe. I feel like my le legs have been dipped in concrete and coach Roberts walks over to me. He's got on coat and tie because that's what coaches that's what wore in those days. Mm -hmm. And he's smoking a Marlboro. That's what they did. <laughs> and he chuckles. He puts his hand on my shoulders and he says, son, that was good. Mm. And here's what he said to me. He says, son, if you stick with me and run track, I will send you to college. You're kidding. He said that to me. I went home that day and I told my mother, I said, mama, coach Robert said that like I could go to college, like on an athletic scholarship. I didn't even know this existed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I, yeah. like someone would pay your tuition to like be an athlete. I didn't know that in track. Mm -hmm. And, and my mother says to me, she says, Oh yeah, sure. son." she says, I'm, I'm sure coach Roberts tells all the boys that Oh, no. she just kind of blew it up. I'm going to fast forward four years from there at the state championship in Jonesboro, Georgia. I win the mile. I win the 880. Mm -mm. I win the 440. I run on the four by four. I get the most valuable athlete award and every SEC school offers me a full scholarship. Mm -mm. Getting back to the time. I went from a 223 to a 153. Unbelievable. Is where he took me. So uh, it, it was it was a great ride. Life it changer. Ride. It was a great ride. You get some new spikes too, right? Oh yeah, and, and then I and then I got like like fancy spikes. Then I had like Adidas spikes and oh my gosh. all kinds of fancy stuff. Then yeah, is it amazing how one person can really? I mean, seriously, obviously you were proving yourself. I mean, you had, you had incredible talent, but one person believes in you. How did you feel that day? I mean, you were excited and told your mom, but were you discouraged when she, or you just said, oh, that's just mom. Well, I thought about it for a moment, like, hmm, I wonder if he is telling all the boys that, <laughs> but uh, I believed him enough because he truly cared because one of the things that he would do uh, is when we would have a track meet that required us to stay at a motel. And I remember specifically the Southeastern high school championship was being held in Knoxville, Tennessee. And before we traveled on a Friday, Thursday at practice, he comes up to me. And he puts his hand on my shoulders. That was a great habit he had. He 
put his hands on my shoulders and he says, son, I want you to know, I, I called the motel. It was a Thunderbird motel, Knoxville, Tennessee. So I called the motel to make sure that colored people could stay there. So I want you to know you'll be safe and you can stay with your team. Unbelievable. And, and I wasn't the only black athlete going through that where white coaches had to check to make sure their black players or black athletes could stay with the rest of the team. And so I went through that. You did go through that. And yeah. you were telling me before too, Benny, that another part of your life when your, your father was, you were in Germany stationed over there and it was a different world over there, right? It, it was a different world. And how old were you at the time? So I was, a, I was nine years old. <laughs> I was nine years old, uh, and this is uh, 1960. And so what happened is uh, my father was transferred to Germany, to Krailsheim, Germany. Uh, he was an Army cook, and he was assigned to the 4th Armored Division. And in a 24-hour period, I went through culture shock. So uh, I had my first airplane ride. Mm-hmm. So we went to uh, Columbus, Georgia to Philadelphia. And then on Philadelphia, we got on uh, a Matt's aircraft, which was military air transport service. And my first commercial airplane ride ends up going across the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -mm. So we uh, arrive in Stuttgart, Germany. My father meets us. Friend has a car, drives us to the army base in Krailsheim. And my mother sits us down uh, when we get there and she explains to us what has happened. She says, okay, kids, there's four of us. I'm the oldest. She says, number one, we are going to live in an apartment building with white people and it's okay. Number two, you're going to start school next week and you're going to go to school with white kids and you're going to have white teachers and it's okay. And I remember my eyes must have gotten as big as saucers. I'm going like, what? Like we're going to be living with white people and I'm going to be going to school and have white teachers and it's okay. Because I've just come from a place where that was not okay. Mm -mm. In fact, it was the law. Right. And the Jim Crow laws, and I rode at the back of the bus in Columbus, Georgia. I drank out of the colored water fountains. There were neighborhoods that you were forbidden to walk through, least you have dogs put out on you. And yes, yeah, so I'm just pretty amazed. And then we spent three years there and then came back to the segregated South. But now, I knew that things could be different, mm -hmm. that people could live together in harmony, that you could have diverse social settings in harmony. And then I realized, so this has been a big lie I've been told, that you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, because I'm saying, wow, no, you can do mm -hmm. this. So it was, it was culture shock in a way that I learned very rapidly that diversity and integration and harmony 
and collaboration really benefited everyone. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, so coming back, then you went through your experience in high school where the law did change. And but, you know, you said you were not excited about going to the new high school. Was it Baker High School? Baker High School. Weren't, you weren't really excited because of the obvious, right? Because you said you'd gone through that your whole life, and it just, I mean. It, yeah, so so the obvious, but now I had had an experience where uh, I knew it could be different. Mm-hmm. And that difference was really embedded in my spirit and soul. So I began to use those moments of segregation, those moments of racism, those moments, I began to use them to learn how I could be even better. I learned how I could be even more articulate. I had plenty of uh, police stops in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, when you're when you're a young black man in the Deep South in the '60s, uh, it's just part of what you're going to deal with. If you're out walking along the sidewalk, especially at night, uh, you're going to get stopped. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And what those stops did is, I really learned how to disarm situations uh, because my father taught us how to survive a white police officer stop in Georgia. So we were all taught this at an early age and uh, you know, you always make sure they can see your hands. You don't move, you stand still, you uh, speak only when you're spoken to you. Yes, sir. No, sir. And just move on. So you don't provide anything that could be misconstrued fairly or unfairly to justify some violent action towards you. And uh, I'm, I'm really good at that. I'm really articulate. Taught early. <laughs> I was taught early uh, because I've had stops as an adult and, you know, uh, Silence is very powerful and looking people straight in the eyes is very powerful. Very powerful. Very powerful. So uh, I, uh, I, I'm very good at that. <laughs> Benny has, are we, are we getting anywhere? Have we gotten better? I, I believe that the opportunities have, have gotten better. Uh, I do believe that we have to, learn that this is all about mindset. It's about thought. And uh, I'm going to go to one of uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's uh, agreements in his book, The Four Agreements. Don't make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Don't make assumptions. Don't take it personally. Right. Do your best. Be impeccable with your word. So, uh, that's one of the books that I, uh, one of my mentors told me to read some years ago. Uh, he said, read these four agreements, this book by Don Miguel Ruiz. Uh, 
And the one that I really focus on is don't make assumptions and don't take it personally. So when I have been stopped, I don't make an assumption and I don't take it personally. Right. Because I don't know that officer's story. I don't know what he or she has been involved in. I, I don't know their story. Right. And the reality is that they don't know my story either. Exactly. So neither one of us need to make any assumptions. Mm-hmm. Don't assume because I'm a black man right. driving down the street that I'm a this or a that or a that. I can remember early in my career back in Florida, I had a chance to, uh, because I worked hard, I was earning money, I was single, and I bought my first luxury car. It was a Mercedes. Oh, my. I was so proud of that Mercedes. It was white with red leather interior. It was a 240 diesel, 240D. (laughs) And I can remember I went to a local uh, night spot that was where a lot of the coaches and so forth uh, went uh, at the University of Florida. And I can remember I walked in there and some guys saw me park and I came in and the comment by these two white guys who I knew who were businessmen were, oh, what are you dealing drugs now? Oh, yeah. So I couldn't afford a luxury car because I had a highly successful therapy business and that I had a college degree and that I was intelligent. Their assumption, because I was a black man, well, the only way that you could conceivably do that is you must be dealing drugs. That's an example of making assumptions. Assumption. Yes. And so we can't do that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's unfortunately where a lot of our minds go. I mean, with anyone, male, female, black, white, whatever the case may be, for sure. So I want to back up a little bit because when you went, I mean, in 1969, the, the Georgia State Track and Field Championship you must have had a lot of scholarship offers. I, I, I did. Uh, <laughs> How it, was that selection process? Yes. So every SEC school offered me a full scholarship. Oh. Uh, I, did, <laughs> uh, I, I did some of the uh, visits mm-hmm. that, uh, and at most of these schools, I would have been their first African-American athlete. So just to give you a perspective, 1969, Coach Paul Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama recruited one black football player, 1969. That black football player was the only black athlete at the University of Alabama in 1969. I selected Florida where we had five black athletes, two football, three track and field. And I was one of those track and field. The process of uh, making campus visits. So some of the offers I got, it was just, we're not even going to discuss it. And uh, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, just, uh, no, I am not even going to that state. Mm -hmm. You know, they just murdered Mm -hmm. Medgar Evers Mm -hmm. and everything else. No, I'm not that courageous. No, right. Some black athlete was courageous enough and, eventually went to those universities. Um, It wasn't that. So I had one trip to a SEC school 
uh, that will go unnamed because I don't know if they can like come back and sue you or something. <laughs> yes. but, but just, Please no. But, but just say that it was an SEC school. So the coaches came and uh, we arranged a visit. So I, I went to this uh, university and they had one black athlete at the time. I would have been their second. And the coaches, you know, they showed me around like, okay, here's the football stadium. Here's the track. Introduced me to the key people on campus. And then they took me for uh, a tour of campus. So here's the picture. Two white men are in the front of this dark sedan. A 17-year-old black boy is sitting in the back seat. That would be me. They're driving around campus and they're pointing out, oh, that's the administration building and that's the this and that's the that. And then we get on Fraternity Row. This is a Southern University. And as we're driving down Fraternity Row, they're saying, oh, this is the this house. And this is, and they said, oh, look, uh, that fraternity is having Old South Day today. Look. And out on the lawn of the fraternity house are all these white fraternity brothers dressed in Confederate military uniforms. Oh, my gosh. With their sorority sisters in these antebellum hoop dresses. And they're waving the stars and bars. And these two white coaches are saying to me, wow, check this out. Look, they're having Old South Day. Tiffany, they, they just didn't know. They didn't know. They, they didn't understand. This is all new for them, recruiting black, black athletes. athletes, recruiting black people. They just didn't know. They didn't mean anything by it. They thought, wow, check this out. Look, Old South Party. And I'm thinking like, okay, you don't understand. This is scaring me. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is scaring me. Like, mm -hmm. what if they see me in this car? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And two white men driving it. Right. Like, uh-uh. Right. Right. That moment, I knew I was not signing with them. Exactly. Exactly. That university, you know, went on as all the SEC schools went on to have some of the greatest black athletes that have ever played the sports. Wow. Uh, go there. But uh, no, <laughs> I, I was not going to be the first. So I'm out. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that old South Day thing. Uh -uh. No, I but mean, they, they they didn't know. They didn't. They know. just didn't know. They were they were doing the best they could with what they knew. Gosh, unbelievable! Oh my gosh! So you chose uh, the University of Florida, and the reason I chose the University of Florida is on my recruiting visit, uh, they flew me into uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, two athletes were sent to pick me up. Uh, one was uh, a black distance runner who I was later going to join. And uh, one was an Irishman from uh, overseas. And I thought, okay, this is kind of diverse. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. And so they, they drive me down to Gainesville and, and all around campus, wherever I went, uh, as they introduced me around and, uh, and then, you know, they, uh, the athletes take you to the obligatory off-campus party mm -hmm. so you can see what sure. real life will look like. Right. There. And they were introducing me around, and I just felt uh, included. And it was a very diverse student population. There were a lot of kids from all these states, you know, New York and Michigan and 
Montana and California because they were coming for the weather. Yeah. And so I thought, this is a pretty diverse, some of these other universities, the student body was just local. Right. Right from the state within 40 miles of the place. Mm -hmm. Right. It was so homogeneous. There was like no real diversity there Mm-mm. in thought or anything else. And at Florida, I felt that. Right. So I signed with Florida. It was, I, I thought that was pretty cool. And you decided to go into the health sciences, right? You, Th- that's you, correct. That's how you are in your career now. So that was your major. So you ran track, obviously, there. And, yeah. But your major, were you just attracted to what you were doing today? Was there just something? I was attracted to being uh, a caregiver and utilizing massage and stretching in my hands and the knowledge of the uh, human body. And I was just attracted to that. So here's here's a great side story to that. So I have a copy of my commencement program, graduation day from high school. And this is before, you know, computers and all this stuff. So you have to send what you need to the printer months in advance. (laughs) So when you look at that commencement uh, program, my name is not listed uh, as a graduating senior because the teachers did not think I would graduate. No way. They did not think I was graduate. So I was in Mrs. Shepard's science class, which was anatomy. Oh. And she said to me, like, you know, you're failing. You're not, which I find interesting, anatomy. Yeah. And uh, so I made a deal with Mrs. Shepard. Her husband was the assistant principal there, Mr. Shepard. He was sort of like the, uh, the enforcer because Mr. Boyles was the principal, but Mr. Shepard was like the right. enforcer. So this is his wife. So I go to Mrs. Shepard. I said, look, you know, I have to graduate because like I'm getting this like full scholarship, mm-hmm. like, and it's contingent on me graduating from <laughs> high school. And I said, what can I do with what I have, with where I'm at to pass your class? She says, you come and teach one of my classes for me and you pick what you want to teach. So I said, I'll teach the skeletal system. So I studied up on it and this and that. So, uh, on a Friday I came and taught her anatomy class Mm -mm. and I taught it so well that she gave me a passing grade and I graduated, but you know, they had already sent the information (laughs) to the printer. So I still have that commencement address as a point of inspiration to all that it's never over until it's over Mm -hmm. and that you can do what you can with what you have, with where you are. And I, I only regret that Mrs. Shepard isn't still alive to see what I have done with anatomy. Exactly. Oh my gosh. In your career. I know. So once you graduated and you opened your practice, right? The massage practice in Florida, correct? Uh, yeah. So I, I started, uh, my first business was called Southeastern Sports Massage. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's history. I mean, I've just been at it for a really long time and uh, have learned a lot, uh, continue to educate myself. Uh, and then I uh, 
got my athletic trainer certification. So I'm a board certified athletic trainer. So we deal with the treatment, prevention, and care of athletic injuries. And then I've just combined that uh, with my board certification as an orthopedic massage therapist and my health science education. And I just work in sports medicine. So I'm a sports medicine professional. And, and you have all these years. Oh my goodness. All these years. And I work with the Uh. widest range of active adults and athletes from rodeo athletes to professional ballet dancers, to race car drivers, to professional baseball, football, NBA, uh, and, uh, People doing Pilates. Right. Yeah. And me. (laughs) And and Tiffany. That's right. There's many of us. That's right. You know, I was, um, I wanted to touch on that because I watched the YouTube video with Tim O'Connell. Yeah. And um, he's a world champion rodeo athlete. And I watched his video where he actually fell off the horse, which was tragic, and sent him to Dr. Tandy, or they did, I guess his team sent him to Mm -hmm. Dr. Tandy. And Dr. Tandy saw him. But what I loved in the video was when he said it, I'm going to send you to send you to my 911 guy, Benny Vaughn. Right. So how, you know, and, you know, you have said this to me and you have said, don't let the pain be your, the pain is the guide, right? Don't, because we're overwhelmed with pain. I've come in your, in your practice and. You've said that to me. Actually, you wrote it on an index card for me. And you said this to Tim, right? Right. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, pain isn't the enemy. You know, pain is our friend. Pain is our guide. Pain is letting us know how we're doing. And to make pain the enemy is, uh, doesn't allow you to progress. So I tell all my clients that, you know, pain isn't the enemy. Pain is a wonderful guide. It gives us instruction on where we are and where we can go, where we should go, where we should not go. And I remind all of my clients that there is a solution. And not only is there a solution, I will help you. Because you can help people in so many ways beyond facts, conditions, and circumstances. You can help people by listening to them. You can help people by believing them. You can help people by being compassionate towards them, being respectful towards them. So I never say to a person, well, that's just all in your head. Well, if it is, so what? Right. Isn't the head part of the Mm -hmm. being? Mm -hmm. Isn't the head part of the human experience? So I don't discount those things. I don't discount Anything a person tells me, I don't discount it. I believe it. I respect it. And then I take that information and I work with it to help them. You know, many times I have walked in your practice and, you know, I'm usually making a joke about something, but I usually say, you know, I'm dying today. I mean, I feel this, that, or the other with all my back and spine issues. But you always say this, and I have so many friends, you know, Ronnie and and and, and Sam Watts and so many of the TCU track guys that are friends with Eric, um, which owns Strength Studio. But you have said to me so many times, I got this. I got this. I mean, and it's just... You're like, really? You do have this? 
And you do. You do. I, I consider myself um, so blessed and lucky to have you because, you know, you take me, but then you're taking the rodeo, pro rodeo, and the ballerinas and the Olympic athletes, but you still take care of me. And do you just look at us all the same, but we're so different? Is the end result? Yeah, I, I look at everyone as the same. So the only requirement that I have is that you're committed to whatever physical activity you're participating in, whether it's at the Olympic level or at the amateur level or at the casual fitness and wellness level. None of that matters to me as long as you are committed to it. And so I just tell people, you just have to be committed to whatever it is you're doing in life. Mm -hmm. And that's the commitment. So if someone wants to see me, uh, and not everyone's a candidate for me, they, they may be better seeing someone else. So, uh, I, uh, am truthful. I am respectful and I will tell you exactly what I believe. And if you come in to see me and you want to dictate what's going to happen, uh, you're not a candidate for me, mm -mm. you know, uh, because in, in my work, everyone is treated the same. It doesn't matter what your last name is. Right. It really doesn't matter to me. So, and, and, and there are people, uh, I believe in the area who will attest to that, uh, because they got their dismissal papers <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because it, it doesn't matter to me. Right. What matters to me is my opportunity to be of service to you. Right. And if you're just looking for someone to do what you have to say, then go back and work that out with your staff. Right. You've been in business 40, how many? 46 years. 46 years. And a couple of years ago, you were explaining to me the grueling hours because you get the job done. Um, you certainly get the job done. You've taken a little shift in your career, however. And I've been so excited to watch you because I remember when you decided that you wanted to be again life coaching and career coaching. And I remember you making that decision and you telling me about your wife, Joan, and you made that decision together. How did you make that decision? What did, were you afraid? Yeah. So I, I made the decision uh, to transform my service to people into transformational life coaching. I realized that all of the experiences that I've had in my life uh, as a therapist, as an athlete has taught me many, many tools that others can use to do the same for their lives. And uh, COVID and the pandemic really amplified the need for mindset support and mindset guidance because so many people were making decisions driven by fear rather than a mindset that I can do this or I can be this way. And, and the fear drum was being beat on media daily, just fear, 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 fear. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. And it was suggesting to people 
to just distance themselves from other human beings. And we are, uh, we are social animals. We require interaction with others of our species. And I saw the impact that it was having on so many people. And I have had an interest in this for years for my own personal development, Mm -hmm. my own growth. And I have seen the result of having a coach. I have seen it in sport. And now I see how that whole concept works in life. So now uh, I have a business as a uh, life coach. Uh, You know, I have clients now that, you know, I meet with uh, once a week. Uh, I, I have particular threads that I work with them on. And, uh, it's, it's a wide range from pro athletes, which is a section that I like working Mm -hmm. with pro athletes, but also just people who are in leadership positions, employer positions. But the most important position is that you're you're in the position of, of life and your ability to be connected with you to be connected with your intuition, to be connected with infinite intelligence is an important part of the human experience. So I'm uh, supporting, celebrating, and coaching people along that using my life experiences because uh, I had, uh, I went through a a program that included uh, a spiritual immersion event up in Dearborn, Michigan. And that was where I took the time to reflect on what my mission is in this life. And it was at that moment that I realized my mission is to support and coach and help other people in their human experience. Unbelievable. And I'm so proud of you. I mean, I've watched you go through this process and it's just been amazing. Now, are you still practicing? Uh, I still have a limited practice. I, I call it uh, a limited VIP practice, <laughs> uh, very limited. And and uh, the majority of my time is spent uh, with my life coaching clients right now. And you're, and you're loving that. I, I am. I am loving it because I feel that. This is a great service for any human being to have someone coaching them, supporting them and celebrating them and giving them guidance based on their life experiences. You know, I'm an older person now. and I've seen a lot and done a lot and I I believe I can help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, people ask me all the time, why did you start this? Greg's retired. You know, why did you start this journey of podcasting? And gosh, I think this is probably 120th episode, but it was to share my life of the, the, the success, which I, which if the success, success I've had and the failures that I have had as well, because I learned way more from not, you know, I've been, I've had therapists not say, don't call these failures. I'm like, they are failures, but you know what, just to share and to help people, you know, by, you know, sharing your life for sure, for sure. Well, I have to say, 
Massage Magazine recognizes Benny Vaughn as one of the 50 most influential professionals of hands-on soft tissue in the world over the past 100 years. Congratulations. How does that make you feel? Well, it it makes me feel uh, responsible so that when people contact me, uh, I make sure that I give them an opportunity to have some connection. Well, absolutely. Well, thank you for helping everyone. Me, y'all, I don't see you very much because you've helped me so much with my nasty spine. Jeez, it's because of that anatomy class you took. In high school, you taught that one day, right? Well, you're off jetting to Italy with your beautiful wife, which is in photography, and y'all are just enjoying life as well, right? We are. You know, my wife has a a PhD in uh, medical and exercise physiology. She's a retired research scientist, and she's remade herself as a professional photographer. So she she does photo art, and uh, she sells it online, and She's doing really well. And uh, so after Italy, we um, we're headed to uh, Botswana, Africa. Uh, she's going to photograph wildlife there. And then uh, after Botswana, we'll go down to Chile to Patagonia, where she'll do uh, a lot of photography down there of just wildlife and landscapes. Beautiful photography. What's her photography called? Uh, it's a Joan Carroll photo art. So if you just Google Joan Carroll, and that's uh, the Irish spelling, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, Joan Carroll photo art. Hey, Joan, we're giving you a shout out here today. <laughs> <laughs> She'll like that. She will. She will. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I just can't tell you how much we appreciate your experience, life experience, your talent, and I can't wait to watch you continue to grow. For sure. Well, thank you, Tiffany Blackman. Uh, I am just thrilled to be like in this fancy podcast (laughs) situation with you. (laughs) Well, we can find you at Benny underscore F underscore Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N on Instagram and your Facebook. So as I am learning this technology, (laughs) how about I'll just give you my uh, website, which is uh, Benny Vaughn Life Coach. Dot com. And actually, that is your Facebook. And I have, and Benny and I have been talking. I've, I've, I've had a crash course in social media. I didn't think I would know this, but you never stop learning. But he, when he went to the Olympics, had to post every day. So he had a cheat sheet for sure. So, well, thank you for coming today. And everyone, thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this piece of knowledge from this fabulous man and hey go up and rate and review this podcast and we're trying to get up on that spotify and apple world and everyone have a wonderful day be kind to each other and keep being fabulous 